The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2 as we continue our study of Paul's great epistle. Uh, You will remember that in the previous weeks in this series, uh, particularly in chapter 1, we emphasized Paul's focus on the person and work of Christ. Uh, There were people in the Colossian church who were teaching the Christians there that if they really want to grow in the Christian faith, they need to move beyond Christ. They need to supplement Christ. They need to add something to Christ. And the Apostle Paul combats that teaching by showing us who Christ is and what he has done, and by helping us to realize and understand that if Christ is who Paul says he is, and if Christ has done what Paul says he has done, then why would we possibly look anywhere else other than him if we truly want to grow? In the Christian life. In fact, a major theme of the book of Colossians is the sufficiency of Christ. That every believer is complete in Christ and that all of the resources we need to grow in grace and knowledge are found in Him. And the process of growing and deepening in the Christian life does not involve starting with Christ and then moving on to something else. Rather, It requires starting with Christ and then remaining in dependence upon him every step of the way as we are conformed to his image. The image of the one who himself is the very image of the invisible God. And so with that in mind, let's read the first seven verses of Colossians chapter 2. We'll be focusing on just verses 6 and 7, but let's read starting from verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good, your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The title of this morning's message is from verse 6, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that this is your word, your very word, your inspired word, your infallible word, meant for our edification, meant to glorify Christ, As we receive it this morning, not as the word of man, but as it is in truth, 
the word of God, which powerfully and effectively works in all who believe, apply it to us, we pray, by your spirit. Teach us so that we might be doers of your word and not hearers only. Encourage us, strengthen us, challenge us, correct us through your word and help us to come to it obediently. Bowing the knee before our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as we hear him speaking to us by his word. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Now verses 6 and 7 of Colossians chapter 2 actually summarize the entire book. In these two verses, the Apostle Paul sets forth principles which he intends to drive home in a variety of ways in each of the chapters of this epistle. Basically, he summarizes for us his concern that Christians remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and also that Christians grow. And of course, these are not mutually exclusive. When we remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, we will grow. And if we want to grow, we must remain faithful to Christ. There is no other way. Again, Paul was writing to a congregation of believers who had come into contact with false teachers who claimed that something additional to Christ was necessary in order for them to grow more deeply in their Christian faith. Now, notice, and and this is kind of obvious, but it is also important nonetheless, notice that the Apostle Paul does not respond to the false claim, to that false claim that I just mentioned, by saying it is an illegitimate concern to want to grow deeper in the knowledge of God. He does not respond by saying that it is illegitimate to want to have a deeper and greater experience of God and of his power in our life. No, he says the problem with the false teaching infiltrating the Colossian church is not that it encourages growing deeper in the faith. The problem is that it encourages it Uh, in the wrong way. It ignores the first principles of Christian spirituality, namely that we are not only to start with Christ, but we must remain with and in Christ, with and in Christ alone. He is the Alpha and the Omega. In him alone we live and move and have our being. So the Apostle Paul basically says, I want you to grow too. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, I want you to grow more than those new teachers you're becoming so enamored with want you to grow, but I want you to grow the only way that you can grow. And so he writes these words, verse 6, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Here he sets before us, and in verse 7, truths about four things, Christian living, Christian growing, Christian believing, and Christian thanksgiving. Living, growing, believing, and thanksgiving, giving of thanks. And I want to speak to you (coughs) about these four things this morning. First of all, there is an exhortation concerning the Christian life, an exhortation concerning Christian living. Look at at verse 6 again. There the Apostle Paul gives us an exhortation concerning the Christian life. And notice this phrase, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. In him. Paul is reminding us here that all 
Christians live in Christ the Lord, having been united to him through the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And in reminding us of this great truth, which, by the way, we can never be reminded of enough, Paul is summoning us to live a lifestyle worthy of the Lord. That term walk here that Paul uses and is found frequently throughout the scriptures, including, by the way, in Psalm 1, uh, part of which we heard read, uh, that term walk refers to our manner of living. It's a metaphor for how we conduct ourselves. Paul is saying to walk in Christ. As you received him as Lord, so live in him, so walk in him. In other words, he is calling believers to live in a way which is consistent with what they have professed as far as being followers, as far as being disciples of Jesus Christ. He's exhorting believers to conduct themselves. In other words, to walk in a manner consistent with what they have professed as far as being followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's calling us to lead a life consistent with that profession. We don't come to Christ and then live any way we want to. Amen? Many people believe that. (laughs) Many people want to believe that. And many people do that. But that's not the Christian life. And, And note carefully the very words that he uses here to describe Jesus giving us instruction about what it means to live in him or walk in him. He calls him Christ Jesus the Lord. Christ Jesus the Lord. Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one who has come, Jesus, whose very name reminds us that God the Savior has come to rescue his people from sin. The Lord. Christ Jesus the Lord, which reminds us that Jesus is not merely a good man. He is not merely an example. And he's not even just a savior. He is Lord, the Lord. He is God. He is the ruler of his people. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, as you have received him as Lord, so walk in him. Live in a way which is consistent with what you first said when you came to Christ. Namely, Jesus Christ is Lord. This lies at the heart of a well-known controversy in the Christian church uh, that has raged for decades Um, John MacArthur wrote a very important book about it entitled The Gospel According to Jesus, which I'm sure many of you have read and I would encourage you to read if you have not. But even long before John MacArthur wrote that book, uh, none other than A.W. Tozer, probably 60 years or more, uh, 60 years ago or more, uh, wrote an essay about it entitled Is Christ Divided? And basically the controversy is this. And this and there's a teaching. I don't know today if it's as prominent as it once was, but there is a teaching that taught, that said, that claimed that when unbelievers come to Christ, they can receive Christ as savior without receiving him as lord. Receive him as savior. They might even continue to to live uh, in a manner of an unbeliever. 
But they've received him by faith as Lord. And then sometime later, they'll get their act together and they'll grow by then receiving him as Lord. Bill Bright, a godly man who did a lot of great work for the kingdom of God, uh, he promoted this in, in a popular tract called, um, uh, what was his tract called? Um, the Spirit-Filled Life. The Spirit-Filled Life. And very, ha, who has seen that track, The Spirit-Filled Life? Just a few people. Okay, it's interesting. In the, I, I should have had diagrams put up here. It begins, it shows a circle. The circle represents a person's life. Inside the circle, the center of the circle is a throne. Sitting on that throne is the letter S, which stands for self. Outside the circle is the cross representing Christ. That is a picture of an unbeliever, and we would all agree with that. The unbeliever enthroned on the, uh, enthroned, sitting enthroned in his life with Christ outside of his life. When you receive Christ as Savior, now the little cross moves inside the circle, but self is still on the throne. That, the teachers of this doctrine say, represents a, Christian, a saved individual. Uh, but they call this individual a carnal Christian. Uh, really misunderstanding that term as used by Paul in the book of Romans. Uh, throughout the book of Romans, any time the carnal man is mentioned, any time uh, the carnal mind is mentioned, it's always in reference to an unbeliever. If you are carnal, meaning you are still in and of the flesh, you are an unbeliever. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian. Now, do Christians behave carnally at times? Of course we do, right? We struggle with that. Um, but there's no such thing as a carnal Christian in the sense that we receive Christ as Savior but refuse uh, to acknowledge his lordship. And then the track goes on to depict the spiritual Christian. Now... Christ is inside the circle. Christ is inside the per person's life. And he's sitting on the throne. And self is off of the throne. All right. John MacArthur, again, and others have uh, stood against that teaching. Uh, those who promote that teaching uh, derogatorily call what John MacArthur and others teach lordship salvation. I like that term. Lordship, I don't have a problem with But they use it to mean that uh, those who teach, uh, who, who oppose their teaching that I just described, are actually adding works to salvation. The work of acknowledging Christ as Lord. The work of receiving Christ as Lord in order to be saved. Uh, of course, we're doing no such thing. Here's the problem. Here's the problem with that, with that teaching. And this is why A.W. Tozer wrote an essay entitled, Is Christ Divided? And this brings us right back to verse 6. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord. Let me ask you a question. When you came to Christ, did you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior? Or did you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, as Savior. There's a difference. Do you see the difference? The Christ who saves, the Christ who is, is Lord. 
Christ Jesus the Lord, Jesus Christ the Lord, is our Savior. We don't receive Christ in his role as Savior, and then receive him in in his role as Lord. He's not divine. He is Lord. We receive Jesus Christ, the Lord, as Savior. And in receiving Christ, the Lord is Savior. What, what, what does Paul say in, in Romans 10, right? If you will confess who? The Lord Jesus Christ. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. He is Lord. Right, so this is now. Look, when I came to Christ, I did not come to Christ. None of us came to. I, I don't think any of us came to Christ with the uh, the greater understanding, the fuller understanding of the gospel that we now have. I, I, I mean, I came to Christ thirty years ago. I did not have. I, I wasn't even a Calvinist. I came through. <laughs> I came. I actually walked the aisle and said the sinner's prayer. Maybe I'm not saved. I don't know. But I actually did that. I walked the aisle, said this in his prayer, went through. Many of us, how many did that? Okay, a lot of us. We came to Christ that way. And then, it doesn't mean we weren't Christian. It doesn't mean we weren't saved. We heard the gospel. We recognized we was. I I knew two things, or maybe three things, when I came to Christ. I knew I was a sinner. I knew that I needed the forgiveness of God that only comes through Christ. And I knew that in coming to Christ... I was committing to a life of obedience. There was no thought in my mind that I was coming to Christ and I could live any way that I wanted, that it would require obedience. Now, I didn't understand the full extent of that. And I'm sure, I mean, I don't really remember, but I, I, I'm sure there were plenty of times where I struggled um, in, in the sense of, um, of not understanding <laughs> uh, that our obedience is rooted in the grace of God the power he provides to obey, trying to do it. I knew I'm now a Christian, and that means I should obey Christ. And that's a good thing to know, amen? And then we later on, you know, as we learn and as we grow and as we read the Bible and as we are taught, you know, God fleshes all that out for us and, and, and we come to understand. Um, I did not come in any sense thinking that I could have the forgiveness of God but then just go on living as I had before, or any way that I chose to live. But there is that, that, that is, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating that teaching, I am not misrepresenting that teaching. As long as you come to Christ, as long as you place your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, there are people who believe that uh, they're forgiven even if they refuse to acknowledge the lordship of Christ. And again, we, we don't acknowledge the Lordship of Christ as a work. We acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ. We receive the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And I think it's very important here that Paul mentions that. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And this reminds us of two very important principles to keep in mind as we pursue this great imperative of walking in obedience to the Lordship of Christ. First, he reminds us that receiving Christ is not the end, but the beginning of new life. It's the beginning of spiritual life. Very often we think of coming to the point of committing ourselves to Christ, that that 
is the culmination of the Spirit's work in us. He has drawn us. He has regenerated us, raising us from spiritual deadness to, to spiritual life, to newness of life. We have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's it. We're done. Far from it. Far from it. All of that is just the beginning of the Spirit's work in us. Receiving Christ, professing him, acknowledging him to be our Savior does not end our spiritual journey. I mean, to the contrary, it merely inaugurates our spiritual journey. It, it inaugurates a spiritual relationship which will never, ever end. It's the beginning of a lifetime of growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the beginning of a lifetime pursuit of, of holiness and righteousness and Christ-likeness. It's the beginning of seeking God. Remember, Paul says of the, of the unregenerate, no one seeks God, right? A lifetime of seeking God begins when we receive Christ Jesus, the Lord. It's the beginning of growing deeper in our relationship with God, with that culminating in eternal fellowship with him in glory. And so Paul wants us to remember that receiving Christ is not, it's not something isolated from our present or our future. It's not something that, that you just did in the past in order to secure your future, but with no meaning or impact for the present. Rather, it is the entire basis, having received Christ Jesus the Lord is the entire basis or foundation of your life now in this world. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, past, so walk in him now. You received him, and that's going to determine how you live for the rest of your life. It's going to determine your manner of living, your walk for the rest of your life. And that walk is going to be one of obedience to Christ. Obedience to the Lordship of Christ. Obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you received as Savior through faith in him. Now, coupled with that truth, he reminds us of another important truth in verse 6. And that second truth is that all growth and progress in the Christian life must be consistent with its beginning. If we begin the Christian life by professing Christ as Lord... Our living of the Christian life must be consistent with that profession. If Christ is the object, object of our faith, if he is the one who saves us, then surely it is Christ who must be the center and focus of our spiritual growth and development. Spiritual growth and development in the Christian life can only take place in union with him. And he is the one on whom we must be and remain dependent. He is the one from whom we are to receive the spiritual resources necessary, the grace and power necessary in order to be built up in our relationship with God. So the Apostle Paul wants us to remember these related truths. Our profession, our coming to Christ through faith, only inaugurated our relationship with God. It's not the end of it. There is probably no shortage of people who, when they hear the gospel and and first begin to be interested in spiritual things, want to quickly make a profession of faith so that they can get back to the business of living however they want to, only now without fear of eternal punishment. And as I said, that is to completely misunderstand what it means to receive Jesus Christ the Lord. 
That's not the end of our doing business with God. It is the beginning of that relationship. Paul wants us to remember that, and he wants us to remember that the way we grow must be consistent with how we first believed, how we first came into relationship with God. The second thing we want to look at this morning is that the Christian life, as as I've been saying, but now we're going to look at it in a little more detail, the Christian life entails growing. Now, in light of what Paul said in verse 6, you, you might rightly ask Paul if he could flesh that out for us and explain a little bit more what it means to walk in Christ as we received him. Well, the Apostle Paul was ahead of you because that is exactly what he does in verse 7. And I want to point out to you three phrases in verse 7 in which he describes what it means to walk in the Lord in the manner in which we received him. First, the phrase in verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Now, let me say that the ESV uh, doesn't really capture the the, the the, the best meaning of those words uh, in the same way that the uh, New American Standard Version does, which renders this phrase as having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him. In fact, let me read verses 6 and 7 to you in the NASB. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted, having been firmly rooted, and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Did you see the difference? According to the NASB, we have been firmly rooted in Christ and are now being built up in him. Now, I'm not going to go into all the technical distinctions. I, 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 don't, I don't know biblical Greek. Um, I avail myself of, of different resources that explain it. Uh, but I think you can see for yourself from the English translation uh, what I'm getting at here. It is great news, church, that we have been rooted in Christ. Amen? We have been rooted in Christ. You have been rooted in Christ if you believe in him for life and salvation. And it is great news that we are being built up in Christ if we believe in him for life and salvation. And that's one of the reasons why I am so encouraged by this text. You know, this world, I think we all know this, this world can be pretty brutal at times. Amen? Life in a fallen world is hard. It's difficult, especially for those of us who have been called out of this world, who have been called out of the darkness of this world and into his glorious light. People disappoint us. We disappoint them. The flesh gets the upper hand. Satan is relentless in his assault, whether by accusation or by temptation or by taunting, persecution. Circumstances get out of hand. You know, dreams are shattered. Society as a whole seems to be unraveling before our eyes. Just when you think it can't get any worse, it does, right? I mean, we wake up to, to, to it seemingly to a new moral or spiritual outrage, you know, every day. Um, and worst of all, 
you know, we begin to wonder if, if, if our lives are going anywhere or producing anything uh, of value. And that's why we can be so wonderfully encouraged by Paul's choice of, 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 of words and, and, and verb tenses here in uh, Colossians 2.7. No matter how tenuous, uh, no matter how uh, arbitrary, free-floating, uh, unpredictable life sometimes seems, we have been rooted. We have been rooted in Jesus Christ. God has graciously seeded our souls into the soil of Christ's unchanging and unconquerable grace. Amen? I wish I thought of those words. I read that somewhere. I don't know. I don't remember who it was. (laughs) But I'll say it again. God has graciously seeded our souls into the soil of Christ's unchangeable or unchanging and unconquerable grace. Our lives are rooted in him. Our hope is grounded in his goodness. That is our identity. That is our security. This is our strength. When we feel like we're wandering aimlessly and hopelessly through one disappointment after another, whatever we may encounter, whether good or bad, of this we may be certain, we have been rooted in Christ. We have been rooted in Christ. But what about those times when so little spiritual progress is being made? We all go through those periods. When it feels like we're stuck in concrete, immobile, immovable, unchangeable. That's when we must remind ourselves once more of Paul's words. Not only have we been rooted in Christ in the past, But we are now being built up in Christ, even now, in the present. We may not always see it, or feel it, or be aware of it. We might not see any major developments. In fact, I'm sure there are times when we feel like we're regressing rather than progressing. Thinking, well, if I'm moving at all, it must be backwards, right? No, Paul assures us that however imperceptible it may be, we are being built up in Christ. We are ever and always undergoing construction. Might be a brick here, a board here, but always and and persistently being built up by divine grace. Yes, every so often we dismantle what God has done. We tear down his handiwork. We experience momentary, though painful, disintegration. But he doesn't give up on us. Amen? Thank God. What he began by grace, he'll finish by grace. The building will be completed. And our souls will grow in conformity to Christ. And one day we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. John assures us in 1 John chapter 3. Now, it, 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 it helps me to know that. It really does. I desperately need to be reassured that my life, my body, my soul, my spirit are rooted in Christ and in what he has done for me. Being rooted uh, and grounded 
in our own good intentions or in the promises of, of other people or, or whatever worldly and financial success we might obtain doesn't do much when life stinks. Amen? It really doesn't. It doesn't really do much when life stinks and our soul sinks. <laughs> we need to know that we are rooted in we desperately need to know that he's still at work in us. Slowly but surely building up what we've torn down and conforming and shaping our souls to look like him. So often, our moral and spiritual fa failures look massive and seem to dwarf our successes. But we are assured of this. Nothing will lead him to forsake his work in us. Amen? So this phrase reminds us that the Christian life always involves growth. It involves growing. And Paul is teaching us here that all Christians grow in grace, having been rooted and built up in him. Paul expects Christians to grow. And again, I want to say it again, notice these are not imperatives. Paul is not telling us to grow. He's not commanding us here to grow. <clears throat> He's simply describing what a person who walks in Christ looks like. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> He's not saying, I want you to make sure you grow. He's saying you will grow. Now, of course, we have a responsibility in, in, in that, in our sanctification. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to get into that now, but he's really assuring us here that if you are a believer, you will grow. You are going to be growing in Christ. He expects our interest in spiritual growth, and he expects to see growth itself in believers, and he expects this growth not to be by our own strength, but he expects this growth to be dependent on Christ, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him. He knows that this growth will only be in him, in Christ, in union with Christ, in relationship to him, empowered by him, instructed by him, dependent on him. We will grow only as we are in relationship to Christ, Paul says. The power to live a new life depends upon our daily living and communing with the living God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul is reminding us that our spiritual growth is dependent upon our relationship to Christ. We do not grow deeper in our knowledge of God by supplementing Christ, by augmenting Christ, by leaving him behind as, you know, something basic, something rudimentary, and moving on to something more profound. We grow in knowledge and experience of God by our communion with Christ and union with him. Uh, Robert, Robert Murray McShane uh, said a long time ago in reflecting on his own growth, he said, quote, I am persuaded that nothing is thriving in my soul unless it is growing. Nothing is thriving in my soul unless it is growing. So let me ask you, before we move on, are you growing? Are you concerned for spiritual growth? Are you doing business with God every day? Are you practicing self-examination 
Are you asking yourself if the signs of spiritual growth are in you? The Apostle Paul expects them to be there. Paul expects believers to be growing. That is the first thing that he says. Someone who is walking, as he originally professed, in a manner uh, worthy of the Lord Christ, will be growing. And let me say this before we move on. I might usually say this at the end of the message, but I'll say it now. I mean, I look around this room. I don't know every one of you. I know most of you, um, but I don't know all of you. So I don't know your spiritual condition. I don't know the extent of your relationship with God, if if you have one at all. Uh, But the Bible makes it very clear. Um, All of us, the Bible says, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. There's nothing we can do to uh, to change that on our own. Uh, there's nothing we can do to earn forgiveness with God. Uh, God's dealings with sinful mankind is purely on the basis of his grace and his mercy and nothing that we can do. Uh, if we are depending upon our own goodness, our own good works, our own religion, whatever that might be, uh, to put us in right standing with God, we will be sorely disappointed uh, in the end. Uh, God owes us nothing except everlasting wrath and punishment uh, and torment in hell. But in his love, of course, he has made a way of escape. He has sent the one we've been talking about all morning, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the Lord has laid, God has laid on him, the Lord Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all, the iniquity of everyone who would ever believe, who would ever place their faith and trust in him. And when he went to the cross, again, the sins, the guilt of every sin ever committed by anyone who would ever believe on him for forgiveness and for everlasting life, that guilt was laid upon him, and then the wrath of God was poured out upon him. So that he who knew no sin... In, in, in a sense, became sin for us. That we, the Bible says, might become the righteousness of God. In other words, God gives to those who place their faith in Christ the very righteousness of Christ. And Christ gets the guilt and the wrath for us. And he becomes our suffering substitute. I never understood that until I was 23 years old. I was raised in the Catholic Church. I would go to Mass a lot. You know, not... we were. We weren't really committed Catholics. And when we did go, I hated it. It was like that, that, that 45 minutes felt like the longest six hours. <laughs> right? It was, just, it was just brutal. And uh, it's funny. After I became a Christian, I wanted to be in church. I loved long. I, I, if the church was open, I wanted to be there. If the service went on for three, four hours, great. The longer, the better. Right? But who was raised Catholic here? Okay, you know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, um, and at, at, at the same point in the Mass every week, the priest would do his priestcraft thing and supposedly turn the, the, the body of uh, the, the bread and the, and the wine into the body, the literal body and blood of Christ. And then he would say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I heard that 
hundreds of times growing up. I had no, I had no idea what that meant. Until one day I heard the gospel prayer. I was being drawn by God. God has to draw you. Uh, I had dear friends uh, preaching the gospel to me. Uh, I went and, 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 and to, a, to a crusade and I heard a gospel message in which that very thing was explained. What it meant for Christ to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And of course it goes into the Old Testament symbolism and how God instructed the Israelites to... Um, uh, to shed the blood of lambs, uh, and that blood, God would see the blood, and of, you know, not only in the Passover, uh, but once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take the blood of a lamb and go into the holiest of holies in the temple where the presence of God dwelt and offer that as a blood sacrifice. Uh, but it was temporary. It could never take away people's sins. It just held back the wrath of God for a time until such a time as he would send the lamb, the, the lamb of God, who shedding of his blood on the cross would take away the sins of the whole world. And I go, oh, that's what that means. <laughs> I never understood what that... And uh, it was really at that point where um, uh, it was just a matter of time. I knew I was going to become a Christian. I probably already was at that point. I, I, but, of course, I believed at that time, hey, I have to get to a church service, and I've got to get up to that altar and say the sinner's prayer. This is, you know, this is the stuff I was thinking and learning. But I understood for the first time that Christ's death on the cross, that on, on the cross he took the wrath of God for my sins or for the sins of all who would believe. And that all I had to do was trust in him. That's what Paul means when he says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. There's no magic formula. There's no ritual. There's nothing you have to do except to look upon him and believe. Amen? And in doing so, you acknowledge your sinfulness, your need for a Savior. You repent of that sin, meaning you turn, you know, you purpose to turn your life and go in another direction. And that's, you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, as Savior. So I would encourage anyone here today who has, who has uh, not received Christ Jesus. You are still, the Bible says, dead in your trespasses and sins. The Bible says you are children of wrath. You are appointed to wrath. In the end, all that awaits you is wrath. Every day you treasure up wrath for the day of judgment, the Bible says. And all of that can be washed away. All of that can be avoided if you will just come to Christ. And, and receive him by faith as your Savior. And if you want to talk more about that, you can see me after church or, or Pastor Caleb or, or Mike or Steve, any of us, the people you've seen up here, and we can talk to you and we can help you understand that better. <clears throat> now, Paul goes on to say in verse 7 that we are being established in the faith. And the word here was often used to describe the practice of guaranteeing legal contracts. God has bound himself to us, church. He has formally pledged himself to our growth in grace in his son. He has sealed the document of ownership. We are his, he is ours, and he will continue to confirm and solidify us in the experience and knowledge of all that he has made known of himself and his purposes for us in Christ. 
And Paul is also reminding us here that the Christian life entails believing truth. Believing truth. Truth as it is revealed in the word of God. And that is our third point this morning. The Christian life entails believing truth. In other words, Paul is reminding us that all Christians are founded on the faith once delivered. We don't just believe in believing. We don't just believe, well, you have your truth and I have my truth. And as long as we believe in something and follow that, you're okay, I'm okay. It doesn't work that way. We believe in the truth, amen? And the only objective, uh, authoritative truth for us is the truth uh, given to us uh, by God in the form of his word, in the form of the Bible. We believe in the word which the apostles preached and which Christ preached. We believe in the word which is given to us in, in Scripture, and our faith is established in that instruction. And the Apostle Paul reminds us here that to be established in faith means to be well-grounded in the truth. That's why we read it. That's why we study it. That's why we come to a worship service and we hear it read and we hear it proclaimed and we do so together. Amen? We have acknowledged that truth. Uh, The ultimate truth in our very first profession, Christ Jesus is Lord. But we continue to be built up, continuously strengthened in that truth. Not only holding um, uh, more firmly holding that truth, and not only in knowing more of that truth, but being deepened in our appreciation for the profundity of this truth and our love for this truth. And all these things we grow as we believe the faith once delivered. You see, without a full and mature understanding of the truth, there can be no meaningful or satisfying Christianity uh, for anyone. And there cannot be a stable church. I want to say that again. Without a full and mature understanding of the truth, there can be no meaningful or satisfying Christianity for the individual, and there cannot be a stable church. Paul tells us that truth is for the purpose of godliness, and if we do not give ourselves to truth, we will not walk in the way of godliness. Spurgeon once said this, men to be truly one to Christ must be truly one to truth. Men to be truly one to Christ must be truly one to truth. And and that is absolutely true. But it is also true of those of us who desire to grow in grace. If we are to continue to grow in grace, we must continue to devote ourselves to the truth of the scriptures. Let me ask again. Are you interested in that type of spiritual growth? Are you interested in the truth? Do you find yourself loving the word? Do you find yourself loving the study of the word? Do you find yourself having, do you find yourself even occasionally having lifelong habits corrected by your new understanding of what the word of God teaches? Penetrating your reality and saying to you, oh, you must do this differently. Or you must think differently now about this or maybe even now you must do those things these things which you've never done before you must do do you find yourself refreshed in the word giving yourself to the truth desiring to know more of god and his word that is a sign of healthy spiritual growth 
And the Apostle Paul says that is a part of what it means to live in him and to walk in him in the way you first received him. Now, of course, there's only one appropriate response to these breathtaking realities that Paul has been writing about, and that, of course, is thanksgiving. No wonder Paul's final phrase in verse 7 reminds us of the importance of abounding in thanksgiving, or as the New American Standard renders it, overflowing with gratitude. It means the same thing. Abounding in thanksgiving, overflowing in gratitude. And here Paul is emphasizing that the Christian life involves thanksgiving. And that is our fourth and final point this morning. The Christian life invariably entails thanksgiving. In other words, Paul is teaching that all Christians are filled with gratitude to God. Notice again the phrase, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul is reminding us that to be filled with thanksgiving, to have a thankful heart, is a mark of the Spirit doing a work in us. Now, as we think about gratitude and thanksgiving in our experience, there, there, there are two interesting components of this. Negatively, gratitude lifts our thoughts from ourselves because true thanksgiving is born in a spirit of humility. And positively, gratitude directs our hearts toward God, away from ourselves and toward God from whom all growth comes, and to whom, therefore, all praise and glory should be given. So thanksgiving and gratitude move us from off of ourselves and on to God. It comes from humility, and it ends in praise. And notice that Paul considers this to be a hallmark of the Christian life. When he describes what it is to live and walk in the Lord, he includes growing, believing, and thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. It's a hallmark of the spiritual life. And so ingratitude, if there's a spirit of ingratitude, a spirit of ungratefulness, an absence of thanksgiving, that always points to a spiritual deficiency. And notice, by the way, that Paul says abounding with thanksgiving, overflowing with gratitude is the mark of walking in Christ. It's not some half-hearted, grudging giving of thanks that he's talking about here. Rather, there's an ocean of gratitude overflowing the the perimeters of our lives. I'm sure there are some of us here today who have friends and acquaintances who have a great deal in terms of the world's wealth. They are enormously materially blessed. Uh, Or they may be blessed greatly in the terms of their status, their influence in the community, their position, the esteem in which they're held, whatever it might be. And yet we know some of those people to be extremely unhappy people. People who, in fact, might even be bitter. And you wonder, how could a person have so much and be so bitter, so unhappy? On the other hand, some of us here today know many people who don't have much at all. They don't share in some of the enormous blessings that others around them have. And yet, strangely, we find some of them to be grateful people. They seem to have comparatively little, and yet they are always thanking God for it. What is the difference between those sorts of people? The difference, often, is the presence of God. The presence of God absent in one person's life and and present in another's. The first kind of person has much 
uh, temporal blessing. They have much temporarily, temporally, but nothing spiritually. Because it's God's presence in a person's life that ultimately makes a person grateful. Second type of person, though they have little materially, they are rich spiritually. Because God's presence makes us aware of who we are. And therefore, what we ought to deserve at his hands, which again is judgment and wrath for our sins, when we see the riches that we have in Christ instead, we cannot help but be grateful for what the Lord has given to us, no matter what our particular conditions in life may be. Amen? Now, I made the mistake this morning as I was driving here of listening to Ravi Zacharias. Don't get me wrong, I love Ravi Zacharias, but providentially, he was talking about this exact thing. And I'm listening to what he's saying, and I said, oh, he says it so much better than I ever could. I had nothing to write it down with, so I'm going to (laughs) try in about a minute to just summarize what he said. He he was answering this question from a slightly different uh, perspective, how in God and in Christ we have answers to the fundamental questions of life, the questions of origins, purpose, and destiny. Because we know God and we know his word, we know how we got here, we know why we're here, and we know where we're going. And in times of suffering, in times of calamity, in times of evil, we may not have answers to dozens of peripheral questions. But we have answers to the most important questions. We know how we got here, why we're here, and where we're going. And so we can remain ever grateful to God and joyful to him. The skeptic, he said, while he may get answers or think he has answers to dozens of peripheral questions, because he does not know God, therefore does not know how He got here, why he's here, and where he's going. And therefore can never respond to the difficulties of this life with joy and thanksgiving. I thought that was such a profound uh, explanation he was giving. I only heard him speak for about two minutes this morning as I was coming here, and I thought, wow, that's really powerful. We do. We really do know why, how we got here, why we're here, and where we're going. And because we know that, And because we know God is in control of all things and he is working the plan from eternity past to eternity future, it makes suffering endurable. Amen? Doesn't make it easy. Doesn't make it fun. (laughs) But we can bear it. Amen? By his grace and by the knowledge of the truth. And really, the unbeliever, devoid of the presence of God in their life, devoid of the truth of God in their life, devoid of any spiritual understanding whatsoever, really has no basis, no foundation for any kind of thanksgiving uh, or joy. I'm sure there are some of you today, in fact, I know there are some of you today who are in the midst of great trials, or maybe you've experienced things in the past which could have made you bitter, but you have not become bitter. Why? I would suggest to you that the the reason some of you carry burdens that not many other people know 
and yet have refused to give in to the, the bile of bitterness is because you know God and he has done a spiritual work in you. And because of that, you have not given in to bitterness in the midst of the trials of life. And instead, you have remained grateful. God has blessed you for that, and God is blessing you in that. It is a testimony, church. It is a testimony to the grace and power of God in your life when you face difficulties in this life and remain grateful and joyful and do not yield to bitterness. That is one of the greatest and most powerful testimonies to the world around us of the truthfulness of the gospel and the reality of the faith and of the blessings which are held for those who love God. Amen? Church, the Bible says the growing Christian is one who is established in the faith, who is rooted in Christ, and who is overflowing in gratitude. Are Christians going to grow into a deeper knowledge of Christ? Absolutely. Are they to do it by supplanting Christ, by supplementing Christ, by going to something else apart from Christ outside of him? Absolutely not. In Christ are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Paul says. It is in him that we grow. And I would just conclude by saying, God, help us to center our hope of growth on him. And when people come and they whisper in our ears and they say, well, that's good, you have Christ, but, but you need Christ plus this. May we turn a deaf ear, amen, to that type of persuasion. However persuasive the words may be, and may we say to them, oh, no, 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 Christ is my all in all. I have received the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. And in him, in him alone, I live and move and have my being. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you are concerned for our growth and our relationship with yourself. You made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until we find our rest in and we find that that is not a, a point we reach, ultimately reach, in this life. But it, it is an ongoing pursuit or journey throughout this life. We are never filled enough. We are never ceasing in our desire and our thirst to know you more. But help us to pursue that in the right way, in such a way that we remember the first principles of faith, that we never leave Christ, that we never question his sufficiency, that we never add something that he has not said is necessary for spiritual life. Oh, God, bring growth in this congregation, individually and corporately, and use it for your praise and glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.